Hello, folks. It's Bryce Hoffman, host of the Thinking Leader podcast. You know, this week, as world leaders gather in Dubai to discuss the fate of the planet, the climate crisis, for the COP28 summit, I wanted to rebroadcast a conversation I had back in 2022 with a good friend of mine, Michael Kleeman, who talks about what the human race has built is suboptimal. Have a listen, and I think you're going to find it really interesting in light of the conversations underway today in Dubai. Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. I am here with an amazing strategic thinker, good friend of mine as well, Michael Kleeman. Michael is a senior fellow at the University of California, San Diego School of Global Policy, a member of the research innovation team at George Mason University, and a strategic advisor to the president of the American Red Cross. And these are just the most recent items on his resume, which is one of the most impressive resumes that I have ever read, stretching all the way back to the early days of the internet. Michael, welcome to the show. It's good to be here, Bryce. Good to see you. Good to see you. You know, there's so much that that we could talk about today. And uh, when when you and I talk, we, we always end up in interest going in interesting directions. But one thing that that I think would be really interesting to discuss that's really one of your areas of, of particular expertise is dealing with problems in complex systems. And we're dealing with a lot of problems in complex systems today. Everything from obviously the global pandemic to, to the global food supply chain, et cetera, et cetera, to global warming. Why is it so hard for people to get their heads around addressing these sorts of complex problems? Well, um, golly, we're biological creatures and um, we at some times like to think that we can deal with some really major complexity, but in reality, almost all of our senses and all of our brain structures evolved to deal with pretty local things. Um, there, there's a concept called the intergenerational discount rate, which says that if anything's three or five years out, psychologically, we give it no value. And, you know, if you go back 400 years, that makes all the sense in the world, right? If, um, if the crop fails this year, maybe I can make it through next year, maybe a year later. But please don't tell me that if I put a seed down in the bank today, uh, five years from now, I'll be much better off if I can't feed myself tomorrow. So, and, and, and we live in our local communities, we live in our local worlds. And so it's very hard, even for people that travel all around the globe like you do and have worked in lots of places to really systemically um, think about things in these multiple contexts. We're just not built for it, frankly. Well, I wonder, is it, how much is that a cultural thing? Because I know that, that, that you have indigenous groups, including some of the Native American tribes, and, uh, and, and I believe the, the, the Maori in, in New Zealand as well, that had this concept of making decisions based on seven generations out mm -hmm. and thinking about the, the multi-generational consequences of decisions. Yeah, I think that's, 
that that, that you're right. I mean, the what we're seeing primarily is the impact of the uh, the the dominant you know European expansion into most of the rest of the world taking that over. And you know, you bring up Maori, and the reality is, it took less than one generation, I believe. Um, uh, for the Kiwi to become extinct once the Europeans got to New Zealand, uh, and yet yeah. they had coexisted with Maori for forever, right? So there, there is a different perspective, but I, I think that dominant, the, the reason it's dominant is because it's, um, it, it, has, it has, if you will, in an environmental sense, or pardon me, in an evolutionary sense, um, uh, beaten out its competitors. That, that paradigm has largely done it, I think, much to the dismay of our culture long-term, frankly, I think. We're worse for it. I would agree. I mean, one of the things that, that we kind of constantly hammer on at, at Red Team Thinking is is thinking long term versus thinking short term. And it's interesting that you say this because I, I you know, I, I tend to think and I think a lot of people probably tend to think that if they do think about the difference between short term and long term thinking and the problem of short term thinking is that a lot of our short term thinking is the product of relatively recent developments, like, mm-hmm. you know, the compensation structure for publicly traded companies that's based on hitting quarterly financial targets. But as you, as you explain this, I think it goes back a bit further than that then. Yeah. You know, and, and, and there's that, that's really interesting thing that it, it, how we, how we frame things and the rewards we get change things. The other, the other thing is a, a point around you know, data. Um, most people, you know, there, there's a small percentage of people in the world that have traveled around, seen different cultures, worked in different places, lived with people in, in, in different places, right? That's a tiny percentage. And, and most of us are pretty, in the literal sense, not in a, in a negative sense, parochial. Mm-hmm. And Particularly so in the go, United States. In, in, in major pockets of the United States. But by the way, it's not just the people that don't live on the coast. I would argue that the people that live in Manhattan and then the summers go to the Hamptons are as parochial as anyone you could think of. Absolutely. Uh, right. Um, and if you don't have the data, how can you integrate the information and, and take a look at a larger systemic view? If, if you, if you're given this narrow frame, I mean, you know, when, when you live in a world, I'll take the, the, the Hamptons crowd. Uh, if you live in a world where it is normal, normal, uh, to spend $150,000 on, um, on, on your child's 13th birthday party. I mean, that's, that is, it's just beyond conceptualization, even if you can afford it. How do you rationalize something like that? But it becomes normative. And so, right. um, and, I, and I think that um, we really don't understand how fragile things are. To your point about just the, la- you know, how things have changed, We've built an agricultural system that you alluded to on a global basis only in the last couple hundred years. And it's based Mm -hmm. upon a period of unusual weather. As you know, the weather has never been, has not been as stable as it has been for the last last 150 years before that. You look at the ice core drillings and things like that. So, but we built a global agricultural system, assuming that Every August, the temperature is going to be in this tiny range and we're going to get this much rain, et cetera, et cetera. And we're going back into the normal chaotic system of weather, um, forced, made, made worse by global warming, but it was always somewhat chaotic. And, and I'm very fond of saying the only thing more chaotic than the global weather system is a marriage, right? Uh, no, you just, you think, but how predictable? We, we assume it's, pre- it's not predictable. 
I mean, how could you have something that big, that complex with all these different variables and assume you're going to have the same within an inch or so, the same amount of precipitation every month in London, you know, for the next 150 years? It's just, it, it, it defies logic to think that way. Right. But that's what we did. We built an entire global system feeding billions of people based upon that assumption. Well, it's a lack of resiliency in planning and a lack, a, mm -hmm. a lack of flexibility in the plans we make. We don't create systems that can pivot, that can flex easily. Right. Yeah. Well, we, we, what, what we've done is we've created a whole series of local optima. Mm -hmm. Right. We optimize for local situations and then on a, at a global basis. And, and, and I'm not just talking physically global, but overall. Right. Um, at a global basis, we create suboptimal systems that are fragile. Uh, but we're going to find a way, an example of a local optima is we're going to be a firm that's involved in a value system around food, and I'm going to extract as much financial value as I possibly can out of that. And it doesn't matter if, I, if I'm the food processor and retailer, if I take the bulk of the money and leave the farmer with very little or the endpoint retailer with a little bit less, if I'm that packager, I'm going to take the bulk of it. And that's a local optimization for their good, but the whole value system, you've really created problems there. You wipe out the smaller grocers in some cases, you can't afford the price. You really put pressure on, on farming at a local level. And then all of a sudden, if you don't have the inputs, then everything crashes. But you've made profit in the meantime. And so right. no, it's very rare to see anyone along that value system optimized for the whole system cooperatively with all the players. It's, it's really rare. It is. And, and, you know, one of the things that's always struck me when I, back in my previous life as a business reporter was a, the lack of short, lack of long-term thinking in most Western corporations, but contrasting that with the, the long-term thinking that does occur in some of the most, you know, respected Asian corporations, particularly Japanese corporations. I'm thinking mm -hmm. most pointedly about Toyota and, mm -hmm. you know, Toyota, the first time I met Akio Toyota, he very proudly walked me through Toyota's 100 year plan mm -hmm. and explained this is a document, living document that they update, I believe every 10 years. And it's something that, that, that guides the company's thinking. And when he showed me the document in 1999, the overarching goal for Toyota's 100 year plan was within 100 years, i.e., you know, by the end of 2099. All of their products and everything that they did had to be not just carbon neutral, but net zero everything. Mm -hmm. So that everything that they extracted from the earth had to be returned to the earth or, or mitigated. And he explained to me very seriously that he says, this is, our, this is our goal because we realize that if 100 years from now, our production, our sales, our operations are still having a net negative impact on the earth. We won't be in business because people will not accept that 100 years from now. And therefore, we're going to do the following things over the next 100 years. It was a serious thing. It's not for marketing. It's something they don't, it's not something they share. It's for internal guidance. But that is mm -hmm. incredibly rare. No, you're, you're right. And, um, and I think there, there's a couple of things you said there that, that, that strike me. I mean, first of all, the the name of the chairman is the same as the name of the firm. This is basically a family firm. Yeah. Um, John Wells, who's a good friend of mine and was the president of IMD and at Harvard Business School for a long time, you know, has done this interesting analysis comparing what he calls managerial capital, which is the U.S. you know 
system mm-hmm. with family capital, which is what Toyota is like. And then also Hyundai, for instance, uh, in, in South Korea and a lot of the European firms. And, you know, they have a totally different perspective. They're part of their communities. They pay their people better. They innovate more. Right. Yes. They last longer. Um, and it, and the difference is the typical U.S. corporate lead sees themselves in and out of their job in under a decade and tries to optimize for their financial return. And a typical family firm lead sees this as a legacy for their children and their family writ large, not just their immediate family, their, their business family, their employees, right? They have a totally different view of what it means to be a leader. And, um, you know, one could argue that the, the managerial capital model is net destructive of value in the long term, but it optimizes again in the short term for maybe three or four people, by the way, not for shareholders. There's good data that suggests that corporations are not run to maximize shareholder return. Corporations mostly are run to maximize the financial benefit of the five senior executives. That's so interesting that you say that. You know, when I was working on my first book, American Icon, um, someone who I spent a lot of time with was one of Ford's senior board members who had been the former CEO of Estee Lauder, mm-hmm. another family-owned company. Yeah. And, you know, when, when, when before my book came out, but when it was done and we were, were chatting, you know, we were talking about, one of the things that he and I talked about is, is you know, the reason Ford was able to do some of the, the things that ultimately saved it during the global financial crisis, like bringing in the president of Boeing to, to run the company, was because even though Ford is is a publicly traded company, it is it is a a, a it, it's a it's it's a uh, very unusual one in that, as you yeah. know, I'm sure that the family controls the company through super voting shares and, and, and can't be diluted. So it really mm-hmm. is a family company for all intents and purposes. And, you know, his thesis, and, and he and he showed me this at several points, was that it was because it was a family controlled company, they were able to do some of these contrarian sorts of things that, that Wall Street just wouldn't have tolerated most likely. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we got to talking about this and he said, you know, you really should write <clears throat> your next book about, you know, the, the comparing f- closely held or family held companies to publicly traded companies. And, and you know, and I because I, I I had already come to believe through my business reporting that the public markets are have a really negative impact on on strategic planning and management sure because of the I mean, yeah. perverse incentives that they uh, that they create. I pitched that to my publisher. And they said, if you write this book, it'll be the last book you ever write because you will, you, you, you will blacklist yourself. Yeah. 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 But you know, it's funny around seven years ago, another brilliant man who sadly is no longer with us named Hal Serkin and I were together and Hal was the senior partner at the Boston consulting group and it was BCG's 50th anniversary. And he said to me, you know, here we have all these amazing corporations with executives being paid millions, in some cases, tens of millions of dollars in total compensation. And the best thing they can do to increase company value is buy back shares. I mean, you've got to be kidding me, right? I mean, this is this is like, where, what are you getting paid for? So, you know, buying back shares when, and by the way, they got all this money from the government, a lot of the zero cost money that corporate or very low cost money that corporations got during the financial downturn that went back into sort of rebuild liquidity in our society, um, basically went to share buyback 
as opposed to creating new jobs or innovation, et cetera. And you're going, wow, you get paid for that? You know, I'm sorry, my dog could do that better. That, that's, that's, that's not leadership. That's greed. I remember writing a story during the global financial crisis when, when General Motors went bankrupt. Rick Wagner, the CEO of General Motors at the time, was making double-digit million dollars a year uh, in salary. And if you add in his stock options and everything, a lot more than that. Whereas Akiosan, which was running what was then still, you know, the, the one of the or the most profitable automakers in the world, took home two million dollars a year all yeah. in. Yeah, no, it's 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 a matter of you know balance and 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 how you view your position relative to those around you. I mean, the the other thing on the long term horizon, one of my very favorite examples. There's a uh, another colleague. Um, who is on the board, I think he's rolled off now, but a, a, a wine ownership consortium, they own a lot of wineries and he gets compensated, but his options don't vest until two to five years after he leaves the board. Oh, that's really interesting. Right? So the decisions he makes have to have long-term value for him to make, for him to benefit financially. So it's, it comes down to picking the right incentives in yeah. part. I mean, if you incentivize CEOs, I mean, mo most CEOs make make more in their bonus than they do in their base salary. Yeah. And most bonuses are based on hitting hitting your annual financial numbers. So what's the incentive to plan for the long term? Right, right. And, and the other thing is how you frame the role of the corporation within its society. And, you know, somehow this idea that the purpose of the corporation was to maximize shareholder value, you know, caught on. I think it caught on because it sort of satisfied a lot of people, but I can find nowhere in law or in tablets written down from a mount that say that. I mean, uh, you know, the, the corporation exists for lots of different reasons. Uh, and and, and the, the irony is that we, um, you know, we, we have to create a, a B Corp model, a social benefit corporation model says to me that the regular C Corp model was lacking and, and, and somehow missing something that we actually had to be explicit about saying, well, I'm a corporation and I exist to improve the society I'm part of as opposed. What's the opposite? Does that mean a traditional C Corp doesn't have that responsibility and can be exploitive and destructive? of the society that feeds it. I mean, to me, this is an irony. It's, it's like in the research community, we have something called translational research and, and translational research is taking things that you do in a laboratory and applying them to the real world. And, and it suggests to me that we've gotten in the research area in some cases so narrowly focused that we actually had to create a new discipline to say, oh, we're gonna take these things and apply it so it's got real value. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everything ought to be trans and not everything. What a, but a brilliant lot, a idea. Of, right, but a lot of things ought to be translational by their very nature, right? Right. But we had to create a discipline and fund it differently to get that incentive out there. I just think it's fascinating. Well, you know, this is something I, I, I've talked with a lot of our clients over the years about it is, it, and it's something I learned from my mentor, Alan Mulally, which is that, that before you get to strategy, before you get to, to management, you have to figure out what, why are you coming to work every day? Mm -hmm. What it, you know, and and Simon Sinek talks about this really well with you know finding your why and stuff like that. And you know, I when I ask CEOs, you know, what it, what is your why, 
a shocking number of them over the years have said to me to increase shareholder value. And, Mm -hmm. and my response to that is, is, is if that's the case, why are you doing whatever you're doing? Why not get into the porn business or the cigarette business? Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. it's a mu- it's a much more rapid way to increase shareholder value. If that's all you care about is increasing shareholder value, if that's the if that's the reason your company exists, then why are you making tires or making you know you know fill in the blank? You know, yeah. just cut to the chase. You know, opium worked really well for the British for a long time. No, and and there there one could argue the people that run some of the drug cartels are certainly increasing their shareholder value at, <laughs> well, at really high point. value, really high rates. You're right. No, I, I I think that whole question of framing, and what are we, what what are we here for, um, is 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 really important. And you know when we look at climate, Toyota's comment I think is 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 prescient and and. And I would just ask him to think maybe there's one other factor that if you don't do these things and every other corporation doesn't do these things, you won't have customers. You, yeah. you won't have you won't have you won't have a customer. You won't have employees. We will have so devastated the environment that supports everything we do that we have no choice, right? And uh, it's enlightened self-interest to do these things. Well, you know, I, I was thinking earlier when you were talking about the inability to think three, four years in advance. I mean, frankly, I mean, isn't that what we saw at Glasgow last year? Mm-hmm. You know, everyone comes together and says, oh my gosh, in four or five years, this, the, the you know, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. And then they make, you know, a few modest, you know, tweaks to their commitments and get back in their private jets or whatever and fly home. Yeah. No, no it's, it, it's an interesting challenge. So, you know, one of the areas is, you know, that I spend a lot of my energy is this intersection between the corporate sector and, and sustainability and environment. I'm not sure what the label ought to be. Um, and, you know, one of the interesting challenges, and I'm, I'm certain you've talked to executives about it. And, and when you discuss this, very often the response I hear is, you know, but I don't know what I can do. What, you know, I, I only run this little $10 billion firm. Um, <laughs> no, no, seriously, that's a small firm today, right? Yeah. Um, you know, what, 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 what impact can I have? And I think we need to find ways to help empower everybody to understand that everything each one of us does can have a material impact, the things we buy, uh, the things we waste, um, how we do our planning, how we think about our supply chains, all those things can have an impact, um, and sometimes we need to create external forces like the move toward, you know, um, carbon counting and things like that. It's now become increasingly important. But, you know, there, there are ways you can do things and, and, and win by doing the right thing if you're framing it the right way. There's a, um, I'm sad that I'm blocking on the guy's name. But he's, again, no longer with us. The, the chairman of Interface Carpet, uh, Ray... I'll think of his name um, at the break. We'll I'll look. Yeah, I'll look it up. But this is a man. Carpet carpet making is a notoriously dirty business. If you think right. about it, right? It's uh, you 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 make the stuff heavily out of petroleum. Ten um, percent of it gets worn. This is industrial carpet, not residential. Ten percent of it gets worn, and then you rip it all out and throw it all away, and it just goes into landfill. And it's just really not environmentally that good. Ray Anderson. Ray Anderson was the chairman of Interface. 
And he was influenced by the thinking of Paul Hawken and then uh, undertook something that was developed in, in Scandinavia called the natural step, which basically looks at the world as a closed ecosystem and, 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 and industry as part of it. And he took all of his people through the training. Um, and he really reshaped the, the, the company, became wildly profitable. He helped him reposition in a market driven by architects and designers. Um, and, um, and, uh, you know, and, and he, and he empowered his people. And there's this wonderful story, how someone had come from another firm to learn about what they were doing. And this woman, uh, was in the, the boardroom and needed to go to the restroom. And, the uh, the, the restroom was down on the shop floor and she's walking across the shop floor and runs across this woman driving a forklift. Uh, and she asks her to point her to where the restroom is. And, and, and the woman says, why are you here? And they get into a short conversation. And and this truck drive, this, this tra- uh, you know forklift driver starts lecturing her. And she's hearing from the forklift driver the same thing she was hearing from the chairman about why it's important, why we build wow. our products a different way, why we think about these things. And then all of a sudden she looked at her watch says, listen, excuse me, because if I don't move this roll of carpet over to the cutting machine, it's going to screw up the entire production line and it's going to throw all these other people. So please pardon me. Wow. But see, that's the power of, yeah, that's the power yeah. of real leadership and, yeah. and engagement with from the C-suite to the factory floor. Yeah. That's so powerful. And, and Ray referred to that as love on the shop floor. I love it. I love yeah. it. This it is great amazing. stuff. Yeah. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, Michael, I want to talk more about how we can start thinking differently, how organizations can start making better decisions when dealing with complex systems. Stay tuned. Hey, folks, Bryce here. If you're listening to this and you're liking what you're hearing and you're wondering, am I a red team thinker? We have an easy way for you to find out. Just go to the show notes, click on the link there to our free assessment to find out if you are a red team thinker and what you can do to think more effectively, to lead more effectively, and to make better decisions faster in your complex world. Like I said, the link is in the show notes, or you can simply go to our website, redteamthinking.com. Check it out. I can't wait to see how you score. Welcome back. So Michael, We've done a pretty good job of describing the problem. What's the solution? Well, we have to reframe how we look at the problem space as a society and understand two things, I think. One is that um, it's not someone else's problem. It's our problem collectively. And it is if anything ever was an intergenerational problem, you know, this is, I, I shudder for um, people being born today about the world mm-hmm. that they will grow up in. Um, and it's personal now that I became a grandfather last month. Yes, congratulations. Uh, thank you. But it's still a mixed blessing. And, you know, and my, uh, the, the kids worry about that maybe more than I do. But the other thing I think is, you know, there was a cartoon in the United States called Pogo. And I know you know this one. And there's this famous line from Pogo is, you know, we've met the enemy and uh, they are us. Yes. Um, All of us bear a responsibility and all of us can do something to make a difference. Um, the, the, The consumption 
of uh, resource is driven by the things that we buy. And the consumption of resources is one of the major things that's causing the environmental challenges that we have. You know, when, uh, when the pandemic started and people stopped driving, all of a sudden three phenomena, interesting phenomena occurred. One is the air got cleaner. Yes. In almost every place around the world. Um, and we had an economic slowdown and it was devastating to a lot of people and a lot of people died and it was tragic. But the other thing is species that we thought were on the brink of extinction started coming back. Which shows you that the, natu the natural world is phenomenally resilient if we stop pushing it so hard. Yes. So everything that we collectively, we, me, the things I buy, how far I drive, you know, what resources I use, how much water I use, uh, how much electricity I use, every single bit of that matters. And at the corporate level, um, one really has to wonder what do I buy? What do I sell? How do I generate value? Um, and what are the long-term systemic costs? And can I really try to frame that and think about what I'm going to do? And if I'm a corporate leader, I would argue that if you are really a leader worth the name being a leader, that you take all of that into account and you say, how do I create a company or how do I recreate my company so that in 20 years it has a vital place in the marketplace, that it is contributing to the fact that there is a stable economy and society, and that the things that I'm going to be building are going to be valued in 20 years and not disdained. And in many cases, if you're, if you're an industrial firm, it'll take you 10 years to turn over your plant base, at least, right? So you, you, you should have started thinking about this already. And even if you're a retail firm, it's going to take you three to five years, um, you know, to really transform everything. So it's it is it is it is probably too late for almost everybody. But thank you know thank goodness from the corporate sense, it's it's too late for everybody. So we're all on the same ground. But I would start as quickly as I could, saying what should we be? And then there's this wonderful concept called backcasting, right? If I know where I want to end up, what steps do I have to take? You know each step going backwards to get there. I love um, that. Backcasting. Yeah, backcasting. And I'm indebted to my friend and colleague, Gil Friend, who runs a group called Natural Logic for that. Um, uh, Gil's been doing this for 45 years. He's wow. He's been a warrior in, in working with companies to try to do it. But the idea is think about what you want to be and how, you know, how would you as a, as a senior executive of a firm, how would you like to sit down with your grandchildren and say, this is the future I'm going to help bequeath to you. The same way Ray Anderson said, come to work every day, saving the earth, right? That's how, how would you like to feel, right? And, and I think we can do it. That's the thing. I do believe we are capable of doing it. It'll cause sacrifice. It'll cause economic dislocation. But if we start now, it'll be much less than if it's forced on us. I think you do. You, you start to see some companies doing that, too. I think Ford, mm -hmm. for instance, if you look at what they've done in the past 12 months in terms of production, in terms of to yep. your point about pain, they just laid off several thousand white collar workers, all whose jobs were centered on internal combustion engines. That's right. I think it's very clear if you if you read the tea leaves that Ford. I don't know what the time threshold is, but certainly within the next 10 years, I would guess is probably not going to be producing any gasoline or diesel powered vehicles, or at least very few.
Yeah. And it takes courage to do that. And, you know, the reality is those people that are, are, are part of the down upstream supply chain to Ford mm-hmm. on all those components for ICEs, et cetera, mm-hmm. really need to be thinking about where is my future and how do I retool today? And how right. do I sit down with people like Ford and others and say, I want to be your supplier of the future. What do I have to do? Right. right. Or gracefully find a way to exit it and utilize the assets and find a graceful way to, to take care of your employees in the process and rebuild the economic base. And that's something that government needs to contribute to as well as the corporations. And also, you know, I, I, I can't say what company in this case, because it's a company we've worked with, but, you know, one of the major petroleum companies in the world, I had a conversation two years ago with their senior executives and they said, in 50 years, we will not produce any, any fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. We, our challenge is how do we transition without going, you know, without, without self-destructing over the next 50 years. And they late, you know, they knew what they were going to switch to hydrogen and wind power mm-hmm. and all this stuff like this, but how do we, how do we, extricate ourselves from the business we've been in for X number of decades. Um, And, but there are people who are thinking that way. Yeah. Unfortunately, they're not the majority. They're not the majority and, and they're not thinking about their employees and the societies around them. And we, we have to be thinking that way because if, you know, it'd be fine if, you know, and I think the oil company doing that is amazing. Um, But if, 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 all they care about is how they're going to get there, but not what happens to the dislocation and the people that all the upstream, you know, all the people that are suppliers and servicers, et cetera. The, the economic dislocation will be so damaging and so disruptive that, you know, there won't be anyone to buy the cars or buy the, the products they're making. I mean, one of the brilliant things that um, Henry Ford did is he was one of, as you know, one of the major proponents of, of this. Was it a six day work week or, or five day? Five-day work week. Five-day yeah. work week. Yeah. And, and I'll never and the forget the wage. quote. And the minimum wage. And the bottom line was, it was enlightened self-interest. If 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 I don't pay people enough, they're not going to be able to afford my cars. And if they don't have time to enjoy them, why would they buy them? So, you know, we need to think that way um, about how do we play in the larger society, not just how do I make a car that I can make the most profit out of. So if you're a, a CEO or a senior leader at, at a company today, how do you think that way? How do you, how do you make, how do you square that circle? Because on the one hand, you, 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 you know, you want to, if say you want to move in the right direction, but you also want to protect to the degree possible, your employees, the communities, you, that your factories and, and, and facilities exist in, you know, how do you, how do you balance those competing needs? Uh, well, we can look at what, as you were talking about, firms like Toyota that mm-hmm. does work hard to balance those needs. Um, you can um, understand that it's going to take time to make the transition. And I think that's the, the, the most important thing. If you try to think, I have to do it tomorrow, you're going to fail because no one, no one can do it. No one, it's, it's, it's impossible. How, how long has Ford been working on this journey? Uh, what is it's over a decade now, at least. Oh yeah. More than right? that. Yeah. Right. So you know, it, it's taken a while. And, and the 150 to me is just an amazing statement and product. The new, I think the lightning, whatever they're lightning. calling the electric. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what, what, a, what a courageous move, right. To do that in so many ways. But it took, it's, it's probably been a decade in, in the development of it, right? And, and so 
it, understand it's going to take time, number one. Um, signal to the market that you're doing this. Um, corporations that are, have public shareholders need to alter their shareholder base so mm. that ultimately the shareholders are in line with what the firm is doing and they don't end up with backlashes. That's uh, a really interesting concept that I've never heard anybody talk about. It's get, getting the shareholders that are aligned with your vision. Yeah. I mean, the, the example I can give you is when the telephone companies in the 1980s went through deregulation and they started moving largely to become mobile rather than fixed line. And as you know, that's an industry I spent a lot of my life in. Um, the um, One of the things we discussed with them, and I was a consultant at the time, was, you know, you have a, a shareholder base who is used to a dividend model of income. Right. Now, Verizon still has that, but I would argue most people don't buy Verizon as a dividend stock. It's just a legacy. You buy it as a growth stock. And so it's a different community of investors. And so what you need to do is signal it early. And that takes time for especially institutional investors to begin to move the stock into a different category and think about it differently. But then when you start making these changes, you already have the kinds of investors that think the way you want to as opposed to are fighting you. And that's, I think that's important. And you need to signal to your employees the same thing. It's really interesting to hear you say that, Michael, because one of the things that that I've talked with Alan Mulally a lot about over the years is, you know, because I, I, he's been very generous to to mentor me over the years. When I've had CEOs who who know they need to do something big to change their direction, but that but then they say we can't do this because the market, you know, the 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 investors will go against us. You know, the mm-hmm. Wall Street will turn against us. And I and I've gone, I've sat with Alan, I've said, you know, what what would you tell this person? And and he always gets a big smile and he says, "That's your job as the CEO, though. You have yep. no more important job than to tell the company's story." And mm-hmm. he, and he said, "If you do a good job." of telling the story, of crafting the narrative, you'll bring Wall Street around it. And his example, which was amazing, was when when he was still CEO of Ford, they they switched the F-150 to aluminum. Mm -hmm. And as as I'm sure you know, you can't build an aluminum truck on on an assembly line that's designed to build a steel truck. Yep. And so the only way they were going to be able to do this was to shut the assembly lines down for, I think it was about 10 months. And the F-150 is not only Ford's most profitable vehicle, it's the best-selling car in the world, best-selling vehicle in the world. So, you know, when when they propose this, and this is something Alan proposed early on because he came from Boeing and, and said, we need to lighten mm-hmm. these vehicles is the easiest way to reduce fuel consumption coming as an aerospace engineer. Yeah. And everyone said, we can't do that. We can't, we can't stop producing our best-selling vehicle for 10 months. Wall Street will crucify us. And his point was, no, they won't. Not if we explain to them why we're doing it. And and so what he did and, he, and what he said his job as a CEO was to do was to go to Wall Street and to sit with all the big banks yeah. and all the yeah. major firms and say, listen, this is what we're going to do. Yes, our sales are going to plummet, but here's what's going to happen as a result. Mm-hmm. A year and a half from now, you're going to see us blow ahead of every other pickup maker in the world because we're going to have by far the most fuel efficient pickups in the world. And the only way that's going to happen is doing this. And, and, and he said, you know, nobody, nobody stamped their feet and said, no, you, you have to keep selling these pickups. They listened and, and then they're like, yeah, wow, that's amazing. That's great. And so if you look at what happened when Ford did that, when they announced it, 
they were very transparent. They said, our sales are going to tank. Mm-hmm. You're going to see at least three quarters of really bad sales, but this is why we're doing it. And their stock price went down a little bit, but not a lot, not, not proportionate to the decline in sales. Sure. And when yeah. the, when the, when the aluminum F-150 launched, it soared. Yeah. And that's all about telling the story. No. And, and, and that's the, the role of, of leaders. Right. And, and, you know, Gil friend also has this wonderful model. He says, you know, I'm going to come, I'll sit down with people and we'll discuss where you need to be. And people come up with 30 objections. I can't do it because, and he says to me, that's the punch list of what things you have to address. The, yeah. the, the market, the market won't respond well. Okay. How do we address that? Oh, we have to do this kind of retooling. We have to change our upstream suppliers. Okay. What do we have to do to do that? Right. And you go through all the problems and they're not barriers, they're opportunities and they're things you have to address. And if we let them be barriers to change, well, any organism that doesn't grow and change dies. Full stop. Right. We know that. Um, And so what you need to do is figure out how do you adapt? And, And these kinds of I can't do it because to me is a punch list of adaptation issues um, and it's opportunity. So good leaders need to, and the other thing is good leaders need to um, pick their teams well and trust and delegate and not try to over control. Um, These are really complex problems. No one person can think them through and a collective group is, is much better. And, you know, Toyota is another perfect example. If you want to talk about, collective management oh I mean, yeah it goes it goes down to the person on the line right right being able to pull the stop lever right and and it changes the entire psychology of the firm and then everyone is engaged uh when i was doing natural step training with a major uh, uh supplier to the package good industry uh we wanted to train everybody in this and and one of the senior executives says why why don't we just train our designers and the other things and i said well exactly the toyota model and he said all the the bulk of the innovation is not going to come from someone in headquarters it's going to come from someone on the line who sees something and says wow if i reframe the question shouldn't we be doing it this way and if you empower those people what you can create is almost unlimited and and i and to me that's always the most exciting part is when you get with people on the line and you give them a little bit of authority and they just take it and run. Well, that's it. People want to be, people want to be, people want to have agency. Yeah. They want to be engaged. And, and, and when you give them a little bit of that, as you say, it unlocks their innate creativity, their innate talent. When I, first time I went to Toyota city, I was on a, I was being given a tour of one of their factories and the plant manager very proudly at the end of the tour took me in, into a, to a side building. Um, where he had a series of devices for the assembly line, mm-hmm. none of which used electricity, all mm-hmm. of which operated on gravity. And he explained, this is a big part of our initiative to reduce our, our yeah. energy consumption or our carbon footprint is to figure out ways on the assembly line that we can have our, our machines operate without electrical power either mm-hmm. through gravity or through some other means. And I said, this is brilliant. Who came up with these? And he said, these were our workers came up with these. Yeah. And, and, you know, he said, we, you know, as you know, they, they, they have a program to incentivize yeah. workers on the assembly line to come up with innovations. And I said, well, well, that's amazing. What, what did they get the, at the time in, in, I don't, you know, in, in the, 
conversion rate between the yen and the dollar. And he said, they get $500. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that's, that doesn't sound like a lot of money. And he says, it's not, it's, the point isn't about the money. It's about, it's about the pride. And he said, do you know when they do this? And I said, no, I, I said, I was starting to wonder, how do you have time to do this? He says, they come in on the weekends and evenings and mm-hmm. work on this together, unpaid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he says, no one's, pu- no one's telling them they have to. And it, it's going to, you know, yes, they'll get $500, but, but they're not going to get a promotion because they're assembly line workers, you know, mm-hmm. they do it because they've been given a say in this and they take pride in it. He said, those workers, when they, when they come to work and one of these machines is on the assembly line, they proudly point this out to their coworkers. Everyone knows that they help build this and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, it's, it's, that's what human beings want at a certain level beyond, you know, just the basic you know, foundations of Maslow's hierarchy. Pay me enough. So as you're saying, I'm not worried, right? A living wage is what people refer to it. Pay me a little bit more than that because it shows that you respect me. But then acknowledge me. Treat me as a human being. Um, Let me have degrees of freedom and let me have my pride. And I think we have as a society ripped away people's pride so much and we forget that money cannot substitute for that. Um, and that most people really, we're we're social creatures, right? We want to be seen, we want to be liked, we want to be respected, and we want to feel like we matter. And, and that, that, that's personal as well as in the the business place. We all want to think that what we do matters in life. And if we reduce people to being simply a cog in a wheel or a drone, and you, by the way, you want to avoid unionization, uh, or you want to cause unionization movements, treat people like crap, treat them like drones, right? Do what some firms have done recently. You want to avoid it, empower them. And, and by the way, they will trade, people will trade off money for, for a lot, for a lot of, you know, not intangibles, um, in in an organization, uh, security is one of Mm -hmm. them, right? Respect. And, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, I think it's an important lesson. It and is. we can do it. I think we can make the changes we need to do. The only thing I would say is we ran out of time 20 years ago. So yeah. the other thing I'd say for any corporate leader is you need to look at this with a sense of urgency that you have to start now. And that means this 10-year cycle, 20-year cycle planning, you need to do it yesterday, if not right now. And then be willing to, as, as you know, was done at Ford with the 150, make hard choices, signal them, get people on board and move forward. And if you make mistakes, learn from them and adjust quickly, adapt and, and renew, because this is going to be a time of radical experimentation. Because, uh, you know, all the old rule books just aren't going to apply the same way they did in the past. That's great advice, Michael. Hey, this is so you've given people so much to think about, you've given me so much to think about. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. It's great to see you again. I hope to catch up soon. Come visit. Thanks. I will. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode there. You'll also find a link to our free assessment. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.